Oh, sorry again. I got cut off. Um, there's a three minute thing. If you want to read it again, I got cut off. Someone knocked at my door, as you could hear. So I got cut off. I'm really sorry. I should be more professional. Maybe get a studio to do this podcast. Anyway, we'll get back to the podcast. Here we go. The boy returned. And Mama, wake up, wake up. Please don't scream. You're scaring me. You're scaring me. Go again. Take anything from his mouth. And me. Go. Go. He obeyed. Came back quietly. And said there was nothing in his mouth. Sakina had seen melon bites in the hall. She thought the killer had pushed a melon into Elias's mouth. Somehow taped it closed. But here was the child saying there was nothing. Elias, Elias, wake up! She called to her dead husband. She thought about her neighbors, Ross with her and Bob Wilson, and she screamed their names too, imploring them to come and help her. Sakina tried to talk her small son into going to next door to the Wilsons and getting help, but he was too resistant about venturing onto into the dark by himself. Sakina told him, promised him the neighbors would have popsicles and candy and they would give him some all he wanted. That got the boy's courage up and he doubtfully throughout much of the trepidation and hesitation went outside and over to Bob's and what River's house on the mission of popsicles. At quarter to four, the Wilson's doorbell rang. Bob was a light sleeper and woke up immediately. He looked at the red digital clock on the nightstand. Wondering who the hell could be ringing the bell so late. He got out of bed, slipped on some pants and a t-shirt and went downstairs. His wife's water was withered just behind him. As they reached the front door, the bell rang again. Bob looked out of the people and there was no one there. Yet the bell rang. Bob opened the door and saw little Ame, who said, you have ice cream? He was probably in his pajamas, obviously frightened, and there was a rope belt still tied to his left arm. Bob asked where his parents were. Amir said, Daddy, Daddy won't wake up. Bob removed the bed from his arm, walked towards the Abawath house. He noticed the lights were on and thought it was odd. As he got in within ten feet of the house, he heard Sakina screaming for help. Slowly he entered the house and quickly found Sakina, a very modest woman. She was terribly embarrassed by her nudity. She asked him for a robe, which he promptly gave her. She said, Please, Bob, go to Elias. He's not answering. Help him. Help him. Bob found Elias at the killer had left him. He felt his forehead. It was cold. Sakina shouted for Bob to make sure Elias, who was epileptic, had swallowed his tongue. She still had no idea her husband was dead. Bob could see Elias' tongue, swollen and purple, frothing from the mouth. He pulled it and tried to clear the breathing passageway, but that was not possible, for his tongue was too swollen. He tried to resuscitate Elias. To no avail, the two men were friends as well. 
as neighbors and Bob began to cry. Realizing that the stalker had killed Elias just a feet from where he and his wife slept, he returned to Sakina. Bob told Ross without the call the police. She ran back to the house, dialed 911, then summoned the neighbors. Emily and Ron led the Zama. Bob told Sakina that Elias was dead. She burst into tears and became hysterical. Emily led the smear, entered the bedroom and tried to confront her. Sheriff deputies John Knight and his partner Kirk Smith pulled up in front of the Aberworth house at 4.7am. Bob Wilson met them on the sidewalk, told them what he had observed. They followed the Sakina, still handcuffed and crying, the moment she saw the officer Knight, just like Shook Knight, who was 666. I mean, no, 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 it's near, crap, six, well, he was six foot six, had broad shoulders. She begged him to help her husband. The deputies noticed the handcuffs and the fact that Sakina had been severely beaten and raped nearly ten times. Knight tried to get Sakina to tell him what had happened, but she kept insisting to help Elias. The two deputies went to the master bedroom and Officer Knight felt for a purse in Elias' neck. Noting a small bullet hole just above Elias' left ear. No pulse. He shined a flashlight in Elias' eyes. They didn't react. The two deputies went back to Sakina and confirmed that her husband was indeed dead. Please. She informed the deputies. Get this off me, please. Please. Indicating the handcuffs. Deputy Dad knew his handcuff key wouldn't work. On the cuffs, he tried to slip her hand out of the cuffs, but they were too tight. Normally, the deputies would not have disturbed the crime scene in any way, but Sakina kept asking them to free her so she could go to her husband and children. Deputy Knight went to the other side of the door. As his partner held it still, he kicked the doorknob off. The cuffs still hanging from her left arm even though the doorknob had come off. Sakina ran to the master bedroom wing. Elias! 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 She shook him. He remained still. She looked in the crib to make sure her ten-week-old hadn't been hurt. He was still sleeping soundly. She picked him up and left the house with enemy Ladisama. Officer Knight followed her, anxious to get a description of the assailant on the radio. To the Ladisama house where she sat down and cried uncontrollably. More police and medivac arrived, and Sakina was examined and treated. As she told about the man who had attacked her, she tied him as being light-skinned, 6'1 or 6'2, with dirty blonde hair, wearing boots. She said his teeth were stained and crooked, and that all he was wearing was all black. She told how she'd been awakened by a popping sound, suddenly he was just there, beating her, kicking her, demeaning her. Many times he'd make me sweat on Satan. He kept saying, Swell on Satan, you bitch! Swell on motherfucking Satan! I wouldn't scream. She described the nature of the sexual assault, and the deputies became convinced her attacker had been the dreaded Night Stalker. Sergeant Paul Bear arrived with a pair of bolt cutters 
to cut the cost of Sakina's thin left wrist. Nat used his radio and called in the description Sakina had given him. At Jill's urging, Perkalil had returned to the house that evening, but she refused to sleep with any of the windows open. She had wanted to be up when Jill returned home, but she had fallen asleep and didn't get home to 3am. She had slept very little. He got a call about the Abawaf assault. Pearl asked him where he was going at 4.30 in the afternoon, 4.30am in the morning. He told the stalker had struck in Diamond Bar, which was only five minutes drive from where they lived. You're kidding, she said, sitting up, suddenly wide awake. He just looked at her, got dressed, and hugged and kissed her. She, she said, Gilbert, get him, stop him. He scares me. He's scaring the children. He's scaring everybody. It bothered Jill deeply, the fear and terror the stalker was causing on his own beat. In his own home, as he sped over to Diamond Bar, he silently cursed the killer and prayed for help. Kaleo arrived at the Aberworth house. It was later after 5 a.m. and still dark, though a hot, Fairy dawn was rapidly swelling in the east. Deputy Knight brought Galileo up to date on the facts. Sakina had been taken to the hospital. The detective decided to wait for Salino before he entered the crime scene. Though he looked in the backyard, hoping there were footprints, using the flashlight, he very carefully walked to the rear of the Aberworth laser dance. He did notice any prints outside, but he spotted one on the floor on the kitchen, just inside the sliding door. It wasn't the Avia suplex of previous crimes, but it was a large as the Avia. He thought, it's him. I know it's him. He noted the screen door had been bent near the lock, and he made his way to the front of the house. He did this on other murders, so the policeman was able to get his motor's upper render because of the French windows. He got in himself another pair of shoes, he thought. Homicide Sheriff, the deputies Mike Robinson and Mike Bonkrat were up for the next murder, and they arrived at 5.20. Kalea told them what he had seen, and said to wait for the crimin- criminologist and Salino before they entered the crime scene. By 5.30, Gisela Vigel, Jelly Burke and Ralph Salah were there, and soon as Frank pulled up, they entered together. The press had gotten wind of the assault, and the news trucks and reporters with cameras, lights, sound bites, and question line the crime perimeter. The detectives noted the ransacking, the disabled phone, the honeydew seeds on the floor, the bullet hole in Elias head, exacting where Chinlong and Gun Van Natch, the time Thailand man who got killed, had been shot. Burke found a uh, spent twenty-five shell on the floor and bagged it. He and Selina took pictures of the plant, then lifted it. As criminalists worked on Salino, Khalil Bonkrat and Robinson scrutinized the crime scene, but they didn't find anything more that might be of help. Bob Wilson told them how the three-year-old Amir had rung his bell and asked for ice cream. At ten past six in the morning, they got a call from San Bernardino Police. They had a suspect looking exactly like this stalker. 
He'd been picked up as he was leaving a porno shop. Probably wanking as he was going in. Salina and Khalil decided to take a ride over to the San Bernardino and take a look at the suspect. Primarily, he was seen exiting a porno shop. Porn they felt was something the stalker must definitely be into. They jumped in Salino's car and drove to the San Bernardino County Jail. The suspect looked like the, the company sketch. But he was neat and clean and had good teeth. The long sized feet, no avias. When Carlo and Salino got back to Diamond Bar, police blasts were there, as well as more Nutrox and long telescopic poles and satellite dishes. When the reporters saw Salino and Carlo, they hurried over, hoping for a quote, but both detectives remained tight lipped. Giselli walked over to them with a long face. The blast she complained were try passing in and out of the house, seriously contaminating the crime scene, as she pointed to the honeydew seeds which had been tracked on the front of the lawn. If you want me to do my job, you're going to have to do yours. The two detectives went inside and seated everyone that the criminals leave, which caused some anger, hurt egos and resentment for the higher-ups. But neither Salino nor Carlillo cared what they felt or thought or said. Salino said, No one, and I mean no one, goes in there but our damn check people. You understand me, boys? A representative from the medical examiner's office arrived and removed the body to the morgue for the autopsy. Charles van der Wendy dusted the screen door for planes but found only fabric marks which indeed indicated the attacker had worn leather gloves. Salino and Khalil learned that Sheriff Block was calling for a press conference for 12 noon to officially announce that there was a serial killer in the loose in Los Angeles County. The detectives were ordered not to talk to the press on their own. When Jill arrived back at his place, Pearl and the girls were packing suitcases and paper bags. She said that she and the kids were just too frightened to stay home alone anymore. That good old JR had taken to sleeping with a bat. He was so scared. Jill said he understood that in truth he too would feel better knowing she and the kids were at the parents' place. Sadly, he had put what Pearl had packed in the car, hugged and kissed her and the daughters. Rennie and Tiffany told him he loved them promised the stalker would be caught as soon as they'd be able to come back home. As Jill watched his wife's car pull away, his children waving, he could feel the warm lump lodge in his throat and the hot simmering anger rise inside him. He hated the stalker, driving his wife and children for him his own home, the bastard. At his press conference, Sheriff Brock told the press a shaggy-haired man with back teeth had been linked to 14 attacks including lip, murder and robbery in the Los Angeles County. He assured the public everything humanly possible and more was being done to catch this sadistic killer. In the morning of the new papers, front page headlines screened the stalker's most recent attack and the reporters and sheriff's news conference. As the public read the details of Abba Wafa's thought, they were even more horrified and shocked. 
Diamond Bar was far from Los Angeles, and where any of his other assaults had been. Was there anywhere he just wouldn't strike? He could strike anywhere, anytime. That morning the task force was caught together. This case is now the top priority. Salino laid out similarities between the Diamond Bar assault and the killer's previous crimes. Phone disabling, ransacking, same shoe print, and a small caliber gun, rearrangedly, sodomy, and the killer's phrases, Don't look at me, bitch! You swear on Satan! You swear on Satan! Hundreds of tips were pouring into the sheriff's office daily, and each had to be followed up on the index so that all the detectives had immediate access to the information. Salino ordered the most recent composite sketch of the killer's pictures sent to 5,000 dentists with a copy of his dental x-ray. The killer's teeth needed attention and he knew he was too hot to return to Dr. Lung's office. After meeting Salina and Carrillo, drove to the morgue and with the detectives Robinson and Bonkart attended Elias' autopsy. It was done 11.30am by Senior Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Joseph Corgan and the coroner who had done the autopsy on Shanarong Janavash, the Thailand man. Dr. Corgan noted that the cause of death was a bullet wound to the head. The gun, he said, was approximately an inch from the deceased when fired. As indicated by the stippling gunpowder burns around the wound, the bullet, when was removed, was handed over to Detective Bunker, who backed it for evidence. Dr. Coden noted his steel jacked and had bounced off the light side of a liar's skull and backed into the brain. Fattened out somewhat, coming to the stop in the light posture, the cerebral hemisphere of the crimes that Richard Ramirez had uh, did. Death, he said, have to come very rapidly. Jin and Frank were sure someone, somewhere, knew the stalker's identity, and it would just be a matter of time before they had a name, an address, and a direction. The rewards were in excess of £80,000, the most ever offered, offered for a serial killer. The stalker had incredible run of luck. Knowing he was a Satan worshipper, they had each taken silently playing for the good forces to intercede to stop this bloodthirsty soldier of the great old Satan. Calio and Salino visited Sakina at her brother's home. She was a modest, shy woman, and it was very difficult for her to tell the detectives what had been done to her. Jill and Frank were professionals, but listening to this little woman describe what had happened in her own home profoundly disturbed them. She could have been either one, one's daughter. Sakina became so upset they had to cut the interview short. They had thanked her for her cooperation, gave her sincere condolences, and silently drove back to the office. The Los Angeles Times decided to cover the story on Frank. He, they felt, was a colorful, larger-than-life character who immediately knew the inside story. It had been widely reported that he headed the Hillside Strangler investigation. Times staff reporter Roxanne Arnold contacted the sheriff's office and asked if he'd do an interview. Sheriff Block okayed the story, hoping it might assert public fears. Salino and reservations about doing it, he knew the stalker would read it and he didn't want to do anything that might compromise the investigation or his own safety. 
On August 14th, a piece of the newspaper appeared on the front page under the headline, Homicide Cop is the perfect man for the job. It described Salino as a good cop who worked the case tirelessly. Salino explained how all the information was being cross-indexed and shared between different police jurisdictions. He also described how different this serial killer was. This is a complex individual and as far as trying to get a handle on his psychological psychopathic profile, investigators are running out of shoe leather. There's a lot of good old-fashioned police work where people are going out knocking on doors and talking to people. But we'll get there some bit soon. We'll get him. Right. Chapter. We're good in the last chapter of today, the other book. The stalker read with great interest the Time article on Frank Salino. He was pleased someone of Salino's stature was after him. It made him feel important and it robbed his huge ego. He soon, however, been thinking it was time to make himself scarce in Los Angeles County for a while. He was still confident he walked with Satan. But the public outcry in Southern California had reached and fevered the page. He sensed it, felt it. People on the Greyhound bus tournament were looking at him too long and too hard and asking too many questions, just like Jesse Perez. Perez was a 62-year-old small-time thief, hustler, convicted murderer. He had killed a man with a knife in a bar fight in good old Texas. In a gypsy cab driver with a bad teeth and an Ed Blank colored circled on the baggy eyes, he decided that the man he knew was Lake was the Night Stalker. The description of him, close hair and especially the teeth, too closely resembles Rick for Perez not to contact the police and claim the award. He decided he would ask his daughter, who worked for the Los Angeles Marshal's office, to contact the sheriff's task force for him. But the Stalker left Los Angeles and drove north in a stolen Mercedes Benz. In San Francisco, the stalker knew it would be easier to get in and out of people's homes. They would not be so cautious and vigilant. And security, as everyone in LA had become, the thought of stopping never entered his mind. He would go on until the deed fucking died. He would not stop. Satan would not let this motherfucker stop. There were only two ways he would stop. He'd either die or be incarcerated. Which give him one reason he'd rather die. He would not want to be incarcerated. In the late afternoon, he checked into room 315 of the Bristol Hotel on Mason Street in San Francisco. The Bristol was a four story transit hotel in the heart of San Francisco's Tenderloin district, perfect for his purposes. There were porno shops, cheap hotels, CD bars and polos, and the streets were packed with crackheads, junkies, alcoholics, broken down, toothless prostitutes with black eyes. It was San Francisco's counterpart to Los Angeles downtown area. The stalker left the hotel and entered the porno shop on Mason and showed them triple X rated movies in little booths of four minutes for quarter twenty four hours a day. When he was finished there he walked over to Mission Street, to some cup at some pot. Then he smoked a joint, the weed that he had left from his dealer. 
in Los Angeles, drove to Chinatown, parked and shadowed a small Asian woman, 65 to 70 years old, for a block. When she entered a two-story building, he followed her into the derelict building. The Asian woman, startled by his sudden appearance, but before she could even say a word, he knocked her to the ground, kicking, pummeling her, until she was a bloody, bloody mess. It was over in seconds. He left her in the hall, not sure if she was alive or dead. No one had seen anything. As far as he walked away from what he had just done, he felt powerful, whole and in charge. Complete, he knew his brutality would please Satan. And he was always eager to do that. That night he broke into a house in the scenic marina district. No one was home. So it was just a burglary. He stole some jewelry, a VCR and a jewelry box and went back to the Bristol Hotel. Peter Pan was 66. The real Peter Pan was it? I do not know. His wife, Baba, was 62. They lived on Eucalypts in the Lakeside District near Lake Merced. Lake Merced. Peter was a smiling, upbeat, gracious man who'd worked as an accountant for the San Francisco General Hospital for 16 years. Barbara Pan was a bank teller. Peter had been born in Taiwan and had attended the Wharton Business School in Philadelphia. Yes. The <coughs> yeah. He had worked he had worked for a railroad company. He'd opened a successful import business in Hong Kong in nineteen eighty one nineteen sixty one, I'm sorry. The Pans had immigrated from Hong Kong to Northern California in 1969. They had two sons and three grandchildren. Mr. Pan was very proud to be an American citizen and often said how great it was to be in America where the people had true freedom. But really, they don't have fucking any. They're controlled by a corrupt fucking government that is even worse than the Night Stalker himself. At 2 a.m. on August 18th, Fate brought the stalker to the pan home. A two-story yellow stucco house on a quiet street. He randomly parked the stolen Mercedes on the block, walked into the pan residence and stood there making certain this was the right place. Then quickly, as silent as the coming of night, he walked to the side of the house, took the screen from the open French window like he did with so many hearted before, and he crept in. Upstairs he found the pan sleeping soundly. He walked up to Peter, put the twenty-five to his right temple, and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. He then slapped and terrorized Barbara, sexually assaulting her, but she resisted him. He shot the bitch in the head for not being compliant enough. He ransacked the house, feeling defiant and daring, wrote in lipstick on the wall on Pan's bedroom, Jack, the knife, and drew a pentagram. 
Oh, ich sehe, hallo, man hat die geil noch, ah. Oh, das geil, das wege, fucking evil now, ah, Papi, ah. He put Peter on Baba's ring, dann a VCR, on Peter's watch, on cufflinks in the pillowcase, and left. Sexually keyed up by the violence, he drove to Tenderleon and picked up a skinny prostitute. On a mission with big, sad eyes and a broken nose, he took her back to his room in the Bristol Hotel, paid her ten dollars and had sex with her feet. Yes, he stuck his dick in her feet. When he asked her if she liked it, she said she liked it fine as long as he paid her. After she left, he slept. At 10.30 that morning, Peter and Barbara Pan's 30-year-old son David went to his parents' room and found his father and his mother near death and the house ransacked with trembling hands, choked with grief as he called the police. The story will go on as the night stalker will continue, but I had to get to the interesting bits because I don't want to get too much into the investigation. We need to get to the murders and the apprehension. So that's it for the audiobook today. I hope you have enjoyed it.